You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Today, uh, this Sunday, marks the beginning of what is known as Holy Week. This is the week that leads us up to and guides us into the celebration, the remembrance of the resurrection of Jesus. We call it Easter. It's called Resurrection Sunday as well, and that's our celebration next week. But all throughout this week, this is a week historically of a lot of meditation, of time just considering the goodness of God, considering who Jesus is and what he did for us as he went to the cross. And then Friday, although it's a funny name, it's called Good Friday when Jesus is crucified. Uh, Black Saturday, which is when Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth and, and was there. And then Easter Sunday when he resurrected, when he came up from the grave and came back to life. This is a week of holy remembrance and celebration, but it all commences with this day, what's called Palm Sunday. And we'll get to the story in a little bit, and you'll see why that we call it Palm Sunday. But in our current study of, of the gospel according to Mark and Jesus' life and ministry, to get to this point, we have to fast forward a little bit. And this is sort of the beginning of the end of the story. This Palm Sunday reference here in Mark chapter 11 is the beginning of the end of Jesus's life and ministry here on earth on his first go around. So find Mark chapter 11 with me and let's read um, verses 1 through 10. Mark chapter 11 verse 1 says this, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. That was palm fronds, basically. That's where we get the name Palm Sunday. And they spread these leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And verse 11, let's finish in verse 11. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now, Many of us have read this and heard this story and this scripture many times throughout our history in the church. And it's an important one, and I was just telling someone else before service, there is so much here in this short 10 or 11 sections of scripture that if we wanted to, we could focus on a whole lot of different things. We could focus on the attention of why Jesus was riding the colt, a foal of a donkey. We could talk about why the palm fronds were being laid in the road and the cloaks on the donkey. 
We could talk about uh, the words that Jesus told the disciples to give answer. The Lord has need of it, right? There's so many things in this text that we could focus on. It would take us forever to get through the importance of this text. But what I want to focus on this morning as we talk about Jesus coming into Jerusalem and sort of the beginning of the end of the story in terms of his life and ministry here on earth in his first advent, his first go around here. It's important for us to take note about what the people are saying. I want you to take note. Take a look down in verse 9. Those who went before and those who followed, they are seeing Jesus riding on the colt. He's, he's riding into Jerusalem. And here the people are, are proclaiming, they're shouting out loud things like Hosanna and even Hosanna in the highest. The word Hosanna, when you look it up and try to figure out what the like translation of that is, there is no translation for it. It's an expression of praise. That's all it is. It, and it's, there's no way to say it means this thing. It's just this utterance, this expression of like praise, 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 right? And so as the people are seeing Jesus coming into Jerusalem, they're praising him. They're, they're shouting their approval of Jesus. But look at also what they say. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The people are proclaiming that Jesus has authority. They're saying Jesus is the one who is coming, that he has been given by God to us as he enters into Jerusalem here riding on this donkey. And then look at what they say in verse 10. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Now, if you remember with me back to the beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus has proclaimed the time of the kingdom. He inaugurates for his disciples and for the world the coming of whose kingdom? His kingdom, his father's kingdom. And the people are looking at Jesus, having heard his teaching, heard his preaching, seeing the miracles that they have done, and they're thinking to themselves, maybe this is it. Maybe finally, we Jews who have been so oppressed and so beaten down for years, right? Maybe finally, this is the one that has been prophesied of. See, all of these declarations, they're messianic declarations, the people are looking at Jesus and going, maybe he is the one. Maybe he's the one who's been sent by God to establish David's kingdom. That great king, the greatest king in all of Israel's history up to that point is King David. And they're like, that's the kingdom that we can reclaim for ourselves where we have dominion and we have the power. But understand that, that we have to understand that these messianic declarations with the intention of, if you will, crudely, parenthetically, like electing Jesus as the king, the ruler of the nation of Israel, that's what they're wanting to do is say, Jesus, here, sit on this, sit on this donkey and we're going to pave the way for you to enter into the city of Jerusalem. And by us doing this and declaring that you come in the name of the Lord, what we're telling everyone, including the Roman occupiers, is that this is our king. And we are now here to take back our kingdom. This is what is taking place in this scene. The followers here, and, and I say followers, the people who are physically following Jesus at this moment. It doesn't mean that their hearts are in the right place, but they're physically following Jesus. They're banking on Jesus 
in all of his talk of the coming kingdom and the kingdom is among you and, and, and follow after me and I'll give you life. They're taking everything that Jesus has said and done and they're banking on the idea that he's going to come in militaristically and he's going to come in and he's going to take over Jerusalem and that they're going to expel the Roman occupiers and that the Jewish nation is going to be able to be established once again in God's city, Jerusalem. This is what the followers at that moment were thinking and why they're declaring Hosanna praise. Finally, we have a leader. Finally, we have a military leader who's sitting on the donkey who's going to lead us into the city and take over. But here's the problem. As we know the rest of the story, Jesus' intention in his first advent, in his first coming to earth, was not to establish himself as a military or political leader. It wasn't to come in and physically take over and establish his physical kingdom. Jesus was establishing the spiritual kingdom of God at that time. There's a further explanation of what takes place in this story. Turn over to Luke chapter 19, please. Parallel story with a bit more information for us. Luke chapter 19. And we hear the same story all the way from verse 28 through 38. We see that same story told, same details, all that good stuff about the donkey. But I want you to look at a couple other verses that Luke reports in his detail here that I think are important for us to understand. Look at verse 39, Luke 19, verse 39. As the people are proclaiming, Hosanna, and blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 39 says, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Conflict again with the Pharisees. The people are like, maybe Jesus is the one. And the Pharisees are like, he's not the one. We don't want him. He's, he's usurping our authority. He's put us in our place. He can't be the one. And so they say, Jesus, or teacher, rebuke your disciples in verse 40. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. That's powerful. There's this worship song that we sing, if I don't praise your name, even the rocks would cry out, yeah? Jesus says the reality of what's happening here transcends your little religious understanding, your little system of belief. Like what's actually happening here is far beyond something physical, right? This extends to something far greater. And then look what happens in verse 41. This is interesting, and this is the part of the story that Luke or that Mark, in his accounting of the gospel, doesn't report, but Luke includes it here, and it's important. In verse 41, And when he drew near and saw the city, Jesus wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And then Jesus goes on to prophesy about how the city of Jerusalem is going to be sieged and how it's going to be torn down. And we know that that prophecy takes place in AD 70 as Titus comes in and destroys Jerusalem. But what Jesus says, as he looks over the city of Jerusalem, there he is up on the eastern hill by the Mount of Olives looking toward Jerusalem. 
And he looks at Jerusalem as all the people have been shouting, yeah, Jesus, you're the one. Come on, let's go. You're going to be the guy that saves us. You're going to be the guy that brings about this kingdom that we're supposed to have. And Jesus goes out and he looks at the city and he just weeps. He just cries. He's like, you guys don't get it. You don't understand what I'm doing. That the kind of peace that I'm trying to bring to you is not the peace from material possessions or material control, but it's the peace of knowing that you have been reconciled to God. Because Jesus was expected and welcomed. They, they, were, they, were, they were welcoming him in. They were waiting for the Messiah. This was a part of their tradition, and they're looking at Jesus going, maybe he is the one. Look at the miracles. Nicodemus said, we know you have to be from God because no one else could do the miracles you're doing. So Israel's looking at Jesus going, maybe he's the one. But they were only welcoming him in the context of come and be our physical king. And because of that, Jesus has to weep and say, you don't understand. I didn't come just to physically be your king. I came to spiritually be your king. I came to rule over your hearts. I came to change the way that you think and feel and react to the world around us. And rather than look at the Romans as these evil occupiers, Jesus would say, actually, you're supposed to love your enemies. You're supposed to pray for those who persecute you. Man, that's a whole different expectation than what the people are thinking. And so Jesus didn't come to be the physical king of Jerusalem, of Israel at that point. Jesus came into Jerusalem, as we know, to be the sacrificial lamb of the eternal Passover. That his blood shed on the cross was for the forgiveness of all sin. That was his purpose in coming into Jerusalem. And if that's what they were doing, see, here's the interesting thing. If that's what the people were recognizing, that Jesus, you're coming in to establish this eternal kingdom, this heavenly kingdom, which resides in our hearts as we place our faith on you, Jesus, and as you sacrifice yourself as this lamb whose blood is then marked over the doorposts of our heart, like it was in the Old Testament with Moses and the children of Israel, if your blood then is applied to us, then you really are the king and we really are your people and your kingdom is established and will have no end. But yet that's not what they were coming, that's not how they were welcoming Jesus. See, you and I have to be careful. We have to look at this story and we have to understand and we have to warn ourselves. We have to be careful not to try and make Jesus be what we want him to be. But rather accept and believe in who he is, in his purpose, in his timing, and in his manner. So many of us look at Jesus and we think, yeah, Jesus, freedom, power, forgiveness, blessings, all of those things. And without knowing truly who he is and what his purpose is in a given moment, we claim Jesus for things that perhaps he doesn't want for us. Blessings that perhaps are being withheld because God wants to build in us endurance or patience or trust or a deeper love of him. These people were declaring what they wanted to happen. Praise the Lord! Hosanna! Come on into the city, King Jesus. Come on in to establish the kingdom that we think should be established. 
David's kingdom. Let's go back to the good old days. David's kingdom, the beauty of the temple. That's what we want you here for, Jesus. And Jesus just weeps and goes, that's not why I came the first time. I came to deal with sin. I came to sacrifice myself. And that's why he weeps. And so you and I have to take that and be, be cautious. Are, are we trying to use Jesus for our purposes? And go, Jesus, I want you shaped and formed in my image so that I get the things that I think I should get? Or are we submitting to Jesus in what his purpose actually is? Now, I want to contrast this with the second coming of Jesus. Mark down 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In fact, turn over there with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In his first advent there, as we see on Palm Sunday, the people are declaring Jesus to be the king, and they're welcoming him into the city of Jerusalem, but Jesus acknowledges that the people didn't have a right understanding of why he was coming. They were using him for their purposes. We want King Jesus so that we could throw out the Romans, so that we can establish a kingdom here in Jerusalem, so that even his own disciples would say that we could sit at your right and your left hand that we could receive some sort of benefit from you being King Jesus, right? Don't I get something out of this situation? That was their purposes and that, that was their intent. That wasn't Jesus' intent for coming. His intent was to humble himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. But here's where we need to focus our attention is, is being thankful for the first advent of Christ rejoicing in his sacrificial death and his resurrection. But here's where we actually look forward. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. This is what the Apostle Paul would say to the Thessalonians, the church there, who were afraid that those of their loved ones who had fallen asleep or died in the faith, having believed, that they were, because they were dead, uh, they were going to miss out on the second coming of Christ. See, from the very earliest age of the church, the understanding of the apostles and what they taught was that when Jesus says, I'm coming back very soon, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back for you, they always lived with an expectation that Jesus was coming back physically, that he was going to come back and establish his kingdom. Once they understood that his first coming had to do with salvation with fulfilling the sacrifice that God needed for our sins to be washed clean, once they understood that, they then had an understanding that Jesus says, when I'm coming back, they believed he was coming back and they lived with this expectation. And the Thessalonians, in their spiritual formation and in their discipleship, they sort of didn't have this understanding of like, oh no, our brothers and sisters, our family members whom we love and who love Jesus, they died, they're gonna miss his second coming. And what they didn't understand was the resurrection of all of those who are in Christ. And this is what Paul explains. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, it says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, those who've died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So the issue was the people in Thessalonica were losing hope. They were like, oh, shoot, our faith is only good as long as we're alive right? They were missing out on this point. And so the point of what Paul is saying is to encourage them. In verse 14, he says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Meaning that when Jesus comes back, those who have already died, 
that they're going to come with Jesus. This is the host of heaven or the saints who have passed on before that the, that the scripture talks about. Right now when they die, they're with Jesus. We were having a great discussion a week or so ago about where that is. That's a whole nother discussion, but we were just talking about it even this morning. Listen, heaven is not some faraway floaty place. Get that, get that Hanna-Barbera like concept, that Looney Tunes concept out of our minds. It is not sitting on a cloud with a harp at some point, right? Someplace in the sky. That's not heaven. Because what we know about the end of time is that Jesus is actually going to return to this earth and that the existing state of the earth broken by sin is almost like a covering. It's almost like a, 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 a cloak that has been draped over God's perfect creation. And Peter talks about this, how this earth in its current form is going to be folded up like an old cloak and chucked out. And that Jesus, when he returns and the new Jerusalem descends from heaven into onto this earth, that this earth, the renewed, perfect earth, like the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve walked with God and talked with him, that's what eternity is going to look like. See, our conception, we use the word heaven, but really we should talk about eternity. Because that's what, we're, that's what we're looking forward to, is life with God forever, apart from sin, apart from brokenness. So I've really tried to change my language to not talk about heaven, 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 but eternity or being with the Lord. And I think that's a helpful way for us to understand that. So this is what he says, that, that for since we believe that Jesus died, verse 14, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, verse 15, for this we declare, declare to you by a word from the Lord. Paul is saying this has nothing to do with our opinion. This is directly from the Lord. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Meaning we're not going to be with the Lord first. Those who have died in the faith will be with Jesus first. For the Lord himself, watch this, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and then with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So wait a minute, if they're coming with the Lord, if God is bringing with Jesus those who have died, what does that mean that the dead will rise first? What it means is that their souls and their bodies will be reunited you understand again that our eternity with the Lord is not some disembodied floaty experience. It's in a very physical experience. Because remember, when Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to the disciples, he actually said, come and touch me. Put your hands in the holes in my side. And Thomas, look at my hands. There's holes in them. And what did he do? He started a fire on the beach and made bread and fish, right? And he ate the fish. There was the physical reality of Jesus in his resurrection. It was just in perfection, glorified. You and I, in our eternity with Jesus, are going to have a physical presence. It will be these bodies that we had, but praise the Lord, in their most glorified state, in their most perfect state, apart from sin, apart from the brokenness of rhabdomyolysis and, and any other condition that we might have. We're free of those things at that point. We can do as many squats as we want, and we're not going to blow out our quads. Like, that'll be awesome. Won't even have to exercise, is my guess, at that point. Praise the Lord for that. But that the, the bodies, those who are being resurrected to meet the Lord, 
It's that their souls and their bodies are being reconnected. And so Jesus is coming out of the sky. Those who are dead in Christ will rise first. In verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with those that came with Jesus in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Look at verse 18. Mark this down, highlight it, circle it, whatever you need to do. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul's message to the, to the church at Thessalonica and the message for us in hearing this scripture is this, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope because death is a reality. Don't lose hope because sickness is a reality. Don't lose hope because conflict and struggle and persecution and pain and unfairness is a reality. Don't lose hope. Because in the returning of our King Jesus in his second advent, when he comes again to establish his kingdom, that's when we're going to be united with him. Body, soul, and spirit. All of those things will be redeemed. Now, in the same way that, that we took note in Mark's accounting of Palm Sunday, and we took notice that the people were proclaiming praises to the Lord, but they were saying that, that yes, he's the king, but he's going to be the king that we elect so that David's kingdom could be reestablished, right? The people were saying what they wanted Jesus to be and to do. We have a very different representation in Jesus' second coming. What does it say here in verse 16? that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Nobody tells God what to do. <laughs> Let's just get that clear. Like, we don't make deals with God. We don't negotiate with God. God makes a cry of command and says, this is what's going to happen. And then not only does God declare by, a, by this cry of command what's going to take place, but there's the voice of an archangel and there's the sound of the trumpet of God. There's a herald. There's a calling. There's a declaration that is instituted not by men. We don't get to decide when God descends from the heavens. We don't get to use God for our purposes. God declares. God commands. God says, now is the time that my kingdom will come in perfection and in fulfillment physically. Now, until that point, what Jesus has declared is true. The kingdom of God is here. It's among us. It's in our relationship. It's in the gospel that we proclaim. It's in our hearts that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and judgment and righteousness where we're like, oh man, I want to be a part of God's kingdom. And the things that I'm thinking and the things that I'm feeling and the things that I'm doing, they're not a part of God's kingdom. And so I need my heart to be right. I need to be washed by the blood of Jesus. I need my sins washed clean. I need to remember again and again that Jesus died on the cross for me so that spiritually I'm a part of his kingdom so that when he comes in his second coming, I will physically be a part of his kingdom for eternity with him. I think it's an important thing for us to remember and I want you to take a look at one last verse here in 1 Thessalonians, just a little bit further down the page in verse 5 or pardon me, chapter 5, we looked at verse, or chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and Paul says, don't be afraid, understand, those who have died are going to come back with the Lord, we'll all be together, therefore encourage one another, another with these words. And then Paul says in chapter 5, he says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, meaning when this is going to happen, he says, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, 
Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. You're not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Does that mean we can't take a nap or go to sleep or have a good night's rest? No, spiritually, be awake. Be sober-minded, be thoughtful. Don't get into the, the groove of like, ah, everything seems pretty good in the world. My life's okay. I got enough money to pay the bills. Family's okay. We're doing all right. We have our struggles, but we're okay. Yeah, when Jesus comes, he'll come and it'll be awesome. No, no, no. He says, be aware. And in verse seven, he says, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not destined for an eternity separated from the Lord. We're not destined to be away from God, enduring the punishment for our sin. But through salvation in Jesus Christ, we are in relationship. In verse 10, it says, uh, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And then, In verse 11, another one to circle, to highlight, to memorize even. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. No matter how bad the circumstances, no matter the challenge that is in place that God has allowed in front of us, could be spiritually, just the struggle of like, gosh, I just want to do better, right? I just want to love the Lord more. I want to be more obedient. That spiritual struggle that turns into a physical struggle. Gosh, I just need to give up sin. There's just things in my life that I keep going back to. Like the scripture says, like a dog returns to its vomit. Like there's just things I keep doing that I'm like, gosh, I don't want to do that anymore, right? In that struggle, Or maybe it is the physical or mental or emotional that God has allowed to take place in us. That struggle to just say, man, I'm just, I can't even walk. My body doesn't even work. Like, what's the deal, Lord? I'm 42. Like, that doesn't make sense. And yet God goes, lay down, bud. You need to take a break. And you need to realize you're not in control of this situation. You don't get to decide when I do what I'm going to do. I'll do it when, when I say. And my timing is going to be the right timing. And until that time, encourage one another. Don't lose hope. See, even Jesus' followers, when he left, they got it. Like, they understood he's going because he's going to come back, right? We had, the, we had the wrong idea on Palm Sunday. Maybe even Jesus' boys, like the 12, were like, yeah, maybe this is it. Like, maybe this is the time, and we, he, we got it right. He's going to be the Messiah. But then what happens later during the week, they end up deserting him because he gets arrested. It's like, maybe we were wrong, right? But eventually what we see is Jesus fulfilling his mission, dying on the cross and then rising up from the grave to the point where it's just like, oh, now we get it. We understand Jesus, it wasn't about the physical thing here. It's about, our, it's about our hearts right now. It's about our minds, how we think about you. But 
You told us that as you leave to go prepare what's going to be for us, that we're supposed to just keep heart. We're supposed to stay strong in the faith. And when we're weak, we're supposed to encourage one another. We have to be in community. We have to be in fellowship with one another so that we can encourage one another to keep fighting the good fight, to keep strong in our faith, to endure against the temptations of sin, to fight against the physical enemies that we have and the spiritual enemies that we have. And so the message of Palm Sunday for us, and quite honestly, the message of every Sunday that we get together and have fellowship is to encourage one another with the things that we know to be true about Jesus. That's our encouragement, that he's coming again. That whether you're alive when he returns or you have died physically before he comes back, we're all gonna be together again. Those who are in the faith, those who are in Christ, as it says, we're gonna be together. And so encourage each other in that. Whatever hardship you're going through, whatever struggle you face, whatever persecution you might endure, it will all be worth it when we're with Jesus. It will all be worth it when he comes again. Amen?